This is Sean with Element Rescue and Rescue Craft. It's been a little while since we've done some podcasts, so we're going to hit it fast and hard here with a new series. So this will be a relatively quick intro into a podcast series entitled Disruptive Rescue. The series will consist of some conversations, various conversations with some of the Disruptive Rescue white paper co-authors, some folks that have caused some significant disruptions over the last few years in the rescue community, and some end users who have put disruptive rescue theory into practice. Our first podcast, which will be up in a couple days, is going to be a conversation with Tom Evans. He is a caver and academic researcher. Uh, you may have read some of his papers on eiders before. His recent research has caused the majority of rope rescue book authors uh, to go back and correct their inaccuracies in their books concerning everything from webbing anchors to pressics and static system safety factors. It'll be a good one. Uh, during the series, we'll also talk to Rusty concerning alpine, austere wilderness, and high-altitude rescue. Talk to Brent about mountain rescue concepts, thoughts on going super fast and light, scrambling in small team elements, and rapid patient access. And Dominic about Jersey Shore and... Uh, traditional and non-traditional fire department technical rescue, the good, the bad, the dogmas of irrationality. We'll also be discussing the truth behind some various rope rescue disciplines, like is there a mountain rescue discipline or a fire department discipline, a caving discipline, or even a military discipline, for that matter, an AMGA discipline? Or is that pretty much just a complete crock of crap? And what we actually see are different cultures where many times we find unsupported biases that have roots that predate many of the current practitioners. And we aren't really changing physics where that three to one is kind of a three to one, a five to one is a five to one. How we put that into practice or application with anything from an MPD to a micro to, to what that is, why it's done, and is there really any truth behind some of the SOPs that that we institute depending on what culture we're in. We're also not saying that all these various rescue cultures are built on the BS of a few early influencers in that specific organization. There are a lot of rescue organizations out there that are pretty squared away, not limiting or handcuffing themselves with unrealistic SOPs or flawed support data and extensive overplanning. typically under the misconception of adding safety, which in many cases actually accomplishes the opposite. But as an ADHD, side note, an often neglected aspect of, of rescue response is environmental pathology. And we bring this up because it'll be a common theme probably throughout all of our conversations and specifically in, in this intro tonight. To stick with our current rope rescue lane, we typically focus on the things in a rescue response that we actually can control, which is a good starting point. Problem is we can't usually choose where, when, or even how we will respond to the vertical emergency. This problem is, is the environmental pathology, which includes things like the weather, uh, recent snow, ice, lightning, etc. the time of day or night that we're responding to, what type of terrain the casualty will be found in. And for our military folks, maybe even getting shot at or being in the middle of, of an operation, which presents a whole nother environmental pathology that, that can be difficult to, to control. So during a vertical rescue response, there, there's a patient pathology 
which is is the injuries or ailments uh, that cause you to respond to them. And then there's the environmental pathology, which is what you will have to maneuver within and interact with dynamically to make access and to effectively evacuate your patient. That YDS or Yosemite Decimal System number used in climbing and, and guidebooks looks uh, a lot different at 3 a.m. after an ice storm or a flood when half your team is delayed in responding and you have to scramble in four miles with reports that your, your patient is, is decompensating. If you suck at interacting with either pathology, your patient becomes compromised. You may be just kick-ass at a medical provider, but lack the depth of skills moving across very terrain or rigging, and your patient's going to suffer. Likewise, you may be a badass guide, a climber, or alpinist, but lack any medical competence whatsoever, and once again, your patient suffers. Um, the next level is, is putting all that together, creating a full casualty management capability which means you're, you're effectively making access to the casualty, recognizing the ailments or the patient pathology, intervening appropriately for the predicted evacuation and environmental pathology, packaging the patient efficiently, not just based on their injuries, but also the treatment modalities that you or your team is performing, and any potential outliers that, that you may be able to predict or, or possibly predict that may present themselves during that evacuation process. And it becomes more, more of a chess game and more of a thinking man's game than some sort of textbook routed answer, like you're working you know, a mega code or something for a recertification. So quick Cliff's notes on the disruptive rescue origin before the upcoming podcast. It was, I don't know, about a year and a half, two years ago, we coined the term disruptive rescue, but have been developing it and refining that concept quite a bit over the past year. We have a team finishing up a white paper, which has become much more academic than any of us wanted. But once again, it's the man trying to make us conform. So uh, when that's out and published, it will add much more depth to, to what these podcasts uh, are going are gonna to cover and go down a lot more to the, the minutiae of, of the concept. These podcasts are, are going to probably give a, a good overview and potentially provide you a little bit different way of, of thinking to, to be able to take back to your teams. So as a background on disruptive rescue, we really actually have to go back to a guy named Clayton Christensen, uh, who is considered the, the founder of disruptive theory as it applies to business modeling, a little different than, than what we're doing in a, a austere rescue type of situation. Clayton is an American scholar, an educator, an author, business consultant, religious leader who currently serves as the Kim B. Clark Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. He also has a joint appointment in the technology and operations management and general management faculty groups. Uh, the term disruptive technologies was coined by Mr. Christensen and introduced in his 1995 article, Disruptive Technologies Catching the Wave, which he co-wrote with a guy named Joseph Bauer. This was oriented at management executives who make the funding or purchasing decisions in organizations rather than 
the research committee or people who are coming up with these new concepts or these new innovations. Later, he further details his term in a 1997 book he authored called The Innovator's Dilemma. And in 2003, in his next book called The Innovator's Solution, he refined and replaced the term disruptive technology with the term disruptive innovation. This change was due to the realization that few technologies are intrinsically disruptive or sustaining really in character. Rather, it's the business model that the technology enables, which creates a disruptive impact in that lane uh, that it's imparted in. Christensen's theory explains why many disruptive innovations are not advanced technologies, which isn't this, this revolutionary new way to whatever, man, new hard drive, new whatever. It it's, doesn't conform to the, the technology mudslide hypothesis that, that people normally think of with disruptive innovation. Rather, they're, they're typically novel combinations of existing off-the-shelf components applied strategically to a small and often over, uh, overlooked value network, which in our case could be the non-professional rescuer uh, or the rescuer whose operational environment dictates non-traditional solutions that the typical textbook, the typical fire department, technical rescue curriculum become somewhat irrelevant for application in two specific environments. Um, at its core, disruptive innovation is, is basically an approach or alteration that creates a new market, which eventually disrupts an existing standard or traditional market and displaces the established market moguls or products and alliances that are out there. This, another, another key performance parameter for disruptive uh, innovation is having a significant societal impact, uh, at least specific to the so society that the innovation has an effect in. Disruption uh, occurs basically at the crossroads of innovation and ease of adoption or adoptive ease. As an example, the, the first automobiles in the late 19th century were absolutely revolutionary, although they weren't disruptive. These early vehicles, these early automobiles were incredibly expensive luxury items that only a few in any given society could actually afford and, and utilize, which had no disruption or no impact into horse-drawn vehicles or rail system transportation at that time because it was cost prohibitive and lacked the ease of adoption. So it wasn't really until 1908 with the debut of the lower price Ford Model T when disruption actually occurred in the automobile industry. So innovative and ease of adoption by societal members requiring alternate transportation was, was now disruptive and affected the previous uh, courses of transportation. So if we look at across a whole spectrum, we see that cell phones disrupted landline uh, telephones, which actually disrupted the telegraph. Smartphones are now disrupting you know, personal laptop computers, which disrupted desktop computers, which disrupted my, uh, mini computers and list machines, which disrupted mainframe computer systems. Digital photography disrupted chemical photography and discount retailers have disrupted full service department stores. There's a guy named uh, Anschman, 
Gandhi, who tried to simplify the complexity of this process by asking, how can someone become a disruptive, innovative thinker? And his answers were basically, look for markets where there's barriers or constraints, which inhibits consumption. It could be from skills to money or the fact that, that going down that road just takes too long. And then find problems or frustrations which the end user faces. And at that point, now you solve the problem by participating in the innovation game and solving that problem through a simpler, less complex, and often cheaper technique. So when we look at various forms out there, we're going to give some examples over the next few podcasts where we'll dive into some other examples of disruptive movements. As an example, like Tactical Combat Casualty Care, TC3, and Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, that have been successful in altering the way we respond to incidents where an operational gap could not be solved with a traditional answer. So following the the previous examples of of disruptive innovation, tactical combat casualty care disrupted a hospital-based ATLS and traditional PHTLS concepts due to it not meeting the key performance parameters of military environmental pathology. So once was followed was ATLS and traditional PHTLS concepts in special operations. After 1993's uh, Battle of the Black Sea in Mogadishu, they realized that something had to change. That did not fill that operational context appropriately. And tactical combat casualty care was was birthed. Uh, And similarly, TECC, or tactical emergency casualty care, disrupted tactical combat casualty care within the civilian response due to tactical combat casualty care not correlating with civilian scope of practice, special populations, and the injury pathology is completely different due to civilians not rolling around or kids going to school where there's a potential active shooter event and they're not wearing level four body armor with a level four helmet with bicep protectors. We see a different wound pathology that that goes on and also the distance in which those shootings occur change incredibly. So due to that, TECC basically disrupted tactical combat casualty care, which was making its way being implemented into the civilian side. So we'll draw on these principles to discuss how disruption can relate into a rescue methodology. So if you ask a room full of rescue practitioners of all backgrounds, what is rescue? You're going to get a variety of answers. But in reality, when we break it down completely, whether you're trained or not trained, people are going to respond to do a rescue in uh, very dangerous circumstances a lot of times. So rescue is, is really whatever you can do to successfully accomplish the end goal with what you have available or your organic assets, with your current knowledge base or skill sets, and your ability to maneuver within that environment. I hate to say it, but I really haven't taken the time to, to read many authors' rope rescue books for, for a long time. And I may pick it up or check it out online or something, flip through a couple pages, basically see some antiquated information, something about not strengths or this or, or you know, always how your figure eight and this is why and, and just irrelevant things that aren't even backed up with, with any kind of data whatsoever. 
or you just see the same stuff that's in every other book. And I put it down. But I did read some good stuff recently from a rescuer out west named Steve Crandall. Uh, it was actually pretty refreshing to, to read what he wrote about things like rescue certification and topics like what is advanced rope rescue. Uh, we've discussed a bunch of these same concepts in previous podcasts and papers like demystifying the NFPA and rescue as a tradecraft. We'll discuss some of his thoughts throughout this whole series. But as a sneak peek, um, it, let's say you get an NFPA 1006, Rope Rescue Technician 2 certification. What does that really mean? You're at that upper echelon of technician level rope rescue. We seem to believe that maybe we're at the pinnacle of our rope rescue greatness, when in reality, we're actually on just the very front side of a bell curve. Qualified just enough to talk about and maybe perform by the book rule guided techniques like tension rope systems or, or artificial high directionals and load transfers. We're, we're like that new paramedic just out of school learning the, the local protocol for bronchospasms and trying to recite it right out of the, right out of the textbook, learning those rules. And that's my lane and, and I'm, this is how I'm going to do this. And it's going to be exactly like what I learned in class. And we follow these rules not because they're the only way to do it or most of the time they're not even close to being the most efficient way to do it, but they are a way that hopefully keeps us and the casualty somewhat safe. So we need those rules early on to be able to kind of guide us, although by no means are those, those rules we learn in, in, in classes really the way to do it by any means whatsoever. They're a way that'll keep you safe and hopefully not screw up and, and hurt yourself or, or hurt somebody you're trying to rescue. Although eventually, hopefully, after realizing and digging in and learning some fundamental physics, uh, maybe a little material science and a bunch of trial and error, a shit ton of, of error, uh, by pushing the limits of techniques and equipment, we begin to move over that bell curve towards the rear of the bell curve or hopefully even into an off the bell curve into an outlier type of position where those elementary rules we used to without question adhere to, we find that they actually handcuff us now. They really don't apply. The rules were, were simply training wheels, keeping us safe until we got enough harness time to, to understand the intricacies of how prussics react versus how uh, a mechanical rope grab works compared to dyneema versus nylon versus an aramid fiber and how those interact within that, that system and reading up on, on different data and how webbing anchors really actually break and that, you know, sneak peek into the next podcast with Tom Evans, how a wrap three pull two is 16,000 pounds, right? Which it is not. Yet, every book that you read, for the most part, is going to have that in there until real life bitch slaps it and you put the, the wrap three pull two to the test against a basket hitch and realize that actually a basket hitch is stronger and it breaks 
with tighter tolerances, more predictable and how it does. And then once you see the, the, the physics and the material science and, and, and once we actually try and get numbers, a lot of what we learn may not technically be accurate whatsoever. So, you know, if nothing else out of, out of tomorrow's podcast, and you'll hear it over and over with Tom, I'm sure, is question everything. If somebody's teaching you something, ask for the data. Have them prove it. Where's the data? Let me see it. Uh, and in Tom's case, he'll probably ask for a scatter graph. Yet, it, it's huge to realize that the rules are there to, to get you to a level where you can think on your own because of your experience, your operational experience, time that you have. So real-world rescues exist between rules. They're, they're in that gray area. Um, there's way too many variables contained just in environmental pathology that you could never create enough rules or textbook techniques to answer all the things that you're gonna that we run into uh, on a day-to-day basis doing doing rescue in the in the real world, not on top of a fire tower where our anchors are already bolted in and and everything is safe and we're good to go and we can conduct rescues if they ever occur on a fire tower like absolute pimps. But we go out into the mountains, we go out into uh, a regular urban uh, high rise, and that's usually when. We start second guessing and the wheels start coming off if we don't have that foundational knowledge in in physics and material science, etc. So that is uh, a lot of talking that I've, I've done. So check back. Often we'll be posting a bunch of podcasts in the next couple of weeks on disruptive rescue where we'll be having conversations with a lot of people from a lot of varied disciplines uh, or cultures and talk about some topics that, that aren't typically discussed too, too often. Uh, Tom will be the next one, which we said before, which will have a lot of data behind what he says and will also make a lot of those presentations uh, and research that he's done available for you to download. Don't hesitate to contact us at info at elementrescue.com. Hit us up on our website. Uh, it's still getting worked on, but there's quite a bit of info uploaded on it right now. And also hit us up on uh, Rescue Craft on Tactical Medical Solutions website. Thanks.